so Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 oh my goodness I've read this before I'm sure worship was a blessing this morning thank you for for singing I could I could hear we the staff because we talk about it staff meetings we can tell when the when the congregation is engaged in worship and when you're not uh, just as you can tell when we're into it and we're not. Uh, so you want your staff to be all in concerning worship, but we hope for the congregation to be all in as well. And I could tell that you were all in this morning. That's good practice because sooner or later, you're going to find yourself, if you're a believer in Christ, in this very future worship service in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Stand with me as we read God's word together. <clears throat> John the Revelator says this, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage. We long for the day that we will be in heaven with the multitudes, robes on and palm branches in our hand before your throne, giving you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It was, ten year, uh, it was when I was 10 years old that I gave my life to Christ. I was in church service one morning. I finally pieced it all together. The Spirit was working on me, the Holy Spirit, and I came to realize that I needed to um, give my life to Jesus and to make that public. And so I tugged on my mom's uh, arm that was standing beside me and uh, during, the, during the invitation, and uh, down I went. A few weeks later, I was baptized. My little sister had come down as well after I did. And so she and I were baptized together and uh, everything started from that moment. I'm so thankful I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home where my parents took us to church and taught us the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a result, my uh, testimony isn't that spectacular or unique. There were no drugs involved and no prison time and no rehab. Uh, It was just me as a kid coming finally to the realization that I needed a savior and that Christ died for me and I needed to give my life to him. If you're a believer in Christ, you also have a testimony that's important and powerful. Today I want to continue our lesson about faith that we saw last week in the life of a woman that needed healing. She was suffering uh, from a condition for more than a decade, 12 years, had gone to every doctor that she could. Nobody could help her except Jesus Christ. So in faith, she came to him when she found out that he was coming through town, snuck up on him in a packed crowd and managed to reach out in faith and touch the hem of the garment. She didn't want to bother him. She didn't want to talk to him or plead with him or, or waste his time. She, she had faith that knew if she could just touch the garment that he was wearing, 
that she would be healed, and in fact, she was. I, re I titled that uh, sermon, Beautiful Faith, and today we're going to continue with that discussion in a different passage, and this morning's message is entitled, Saving Faith, Saving Faith. <clears throat> what is faith? When I say the word faith, I know for a lot of people, it's a bit of a dry statement. It's a conceptual thing or a theological thing, and that word faith just seems very uninteresting and a little bit dull. But I assure you, it's not intended to be that way. What is faith? When the Bible uses the word faith, what does that mean? What does faith in Christ look like? We just read about the end of our faith. Because our faith, if you're a believer in Christ or you're going to become a believer in Christ, has a clear beginning and an end. The end of our faith will happen in heaven. And I say it's the end of our faith because when we're standing around the throne of God, faith will no longer be required. We don't have to wonder and speculate and say, I hope that there is a resurrection on the last day because there we will be in heaven. We don't have to say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in faith because we will be able to see Christ in heaven. We won't have to say, I hope and I pray and I believe in faith that we will be gathered together with the other believers one day because we will be there and we will be with other believers, our loved ones in Christ for an eternity and there will be no longer a need for faith. In fact, in this passage, it says at this great worship service that a great multitude was there that no one would, could count. Now, you and I understand through history how many people have come to faith in Christ, how many billions, the largest faith or the largest religion in the world. And for centuries and centuries, how many billions upon billions of people have come to faith in Christ. And I believe that it will continue to grow and to be strong as God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven until the day that Christ returns and all of this comes to an end. People will continue to come to faith in Christ. All of those will be gathered in heaven with us as we worship on that great day. But John the Revelator in the first century did not know what you and I know as a matter of history. He knew it as a matter of faith. He envisioned this because God took him to heaven and let him see this great event. You and I know it to be true because we have history books. But John knew in faith. You see, those in the first century, the disciples, the apostles, and the believers in the churches throughout Asia and Asia Minor and throughout Europe, <clears throat> there, was, there was this probably this belief among Western Europe that Christianity was a cult, a fad that will come and go and will all be gone. Of course, all of those gods that they worshiped, all are gone. Nobody's worshiping any of those Roman or Greek gods anymore, but Christianity has continued to thrive and flourish throughout the centuries. But the believers in the first century hoped that, that would happen. They believed that would happen, but they hadn't seen it happen yet. The church was really very small compared to today. In fact, we're going to go back to the beginning in just a minute. But this passage shares with us the end of our faith as we stand in front of the throne, in front of the Lamb. 
You'll be wearing a white robe and you'll be crying out as one. Salvation belongs to our God. There's that word salvation, saving faith. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Today, in order to look at the beginning of our faith as we think about or contemplate the end of our faith in heaven, I want us to go back and look at the beginning of the church, just briefly. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, if you would turn there with me, I want you to consider out of Acts chapter 2 that there are three important elements of faith. And the first we're going to see is what I call indwelling faith. Indwelling faith. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, let me stop right there just a second. When the day of Pentecost came, it's a reference to that day where the, where the church, every believer in Christ, is going to receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus in his final words before his ascension into heaven, after the resurrection, told his disciples to stay there, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. So they've been waiting there for this day to come. It also says <clears throat> they were all together, they being all the believers. It is extraordinary to think uh, that the entire church, the entire body of believers, every Christian on the planet was able to fit into one place. Imagine today in the 21st century, if we were to build a structure large enough to have one big worship service for every man, woman, and child on planet Earth to worship God. Wow, we couldn't build a building that big. It would be millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people. And that's just this generation. But this is the beginning of the church. And at that time, it was located in one place, Jerusalem, and one group of people. And they're coming together to worship. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. It also tells me that there is a unity there. Do you know what's about to happen? So the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them in power. This is an amazing event. Can you imagine if any of the believers didn't show up that day? They thought, you know, I don't really need to get together with the other believers. I don't need to go to church. I have an arrangement with God, just me and God. I worship God in my own way, and I'll let them do their things. Their thing. They would have missed it. But they didn't miss it because they were there. They were together worshiping God as his church. Verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. So note, they were all together 
every Christian, one place on earth, and something filled the house. And interesting. It says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It doesn't say it was, it was a, a violent wind that came in. It doesn't say it was the blowing of a violent wind. It, it's a sound like that. So if you've ever been in a windstorm, in fact, when I wake up during the night and a cold front comes through, which is going to happen this week, by the way, winter's going to finally decide to show up. And uh, so it's going to be cold for most of this week. And, and when you wake up in the middle of the night, as I have so many times, and so have you, and you hear that front come through, you hear that wind blowing. And if you've ever been in a, a storm, a wind storm, it can be just deafening. And so this is what he's saying. It wasn't just uh, two guys turned to one another and says, Bob, did you hear that? I, it sounds kind of like, did you hear that sound? I, I think I heard a sound. Did you hear it? There was none of that. It was a deafeningly loud sound. So the first thing that happened that they knew was unusual was they heard a sound. It was so substantial that down in verse 5, it says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, God-fearing is not just a general term. God-fearers were people from other nations who were not born and raised Jews, but they came to this realization in their life that there was one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they could convert to Judaism, but it took a lifetime, an entire generation to do that. And so for that first generation, they were called God-fearers. And so Gentiles could become Jews in a single generation, but that first was called God-fearers. And so these people have come there from all over the known world in multiple different cultures, different languages, uh, and different people groups. And they are, they are in Jerusalem at this time during Pentecost. And so while they are there, something happens. Look at verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard speaking uh, them speaking in his own language. Now let me, before we get to the language part, they heard something. And they weren't there. They were miles away around Jerusalem it was so loud that you could hear it throughout the entire region. When the Holy Spirit came down, it was loud. They could hear something's going on, and so they went running to see what it was. And then when they got there, they were even more astonished because they heard the Christians that were there, the apostles that were there, and the Christians, they're sharing through, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking through them, and they're, they're prophesying, they're preaching, they're exclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those people from all different languages come there. They don't need an interpreter because the Holy Spirit allows them to understand in their own language what is being said. It's the first instance in history of a true universal translator, the Holy Spirit. A miracle. So back to verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. So the first thing they, they experienced was a sound. And then verse 3, they what? They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, I can't explain this. I, I, I 
told uh, our local producer, one of the producers of the Chosen series, that I really want the Chosen series to come to this point where they show this scene. Because the digital effects producer is a member of our church for the Chosen. And I turned to him, as I often do, and I said, I can't wait to see how you're going to make this look. Because it wasn't actually fire or if it was it was something that approximated fire. It, the best description they had was fire, what looked like tongues of fire. So there's something over their heads that they see that's glowing. And again, I don't know how to explain it, but here's what God did. He didn't want there to be any misunderstanding between the Christians that were there or the God-fears that came running that something was going on that was supernatural. He wanted them to understand that what was happening to them was happening in them and they could hear it and they could see it on all the believers. And by the way, it was all the believers. It wasn't that this section over here had big tongues of fire over their head. This section over here had little tongues and the ones in the middle just missed out. It was none of that. Every believer experienced the oncoming, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so they were all together. Something filled the house. They heard the wind. They saw the fire and they experienced the indwelling. Faith, saving faith, is an indwelling faith. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Then the Spirit of God that indwelled them indwells you as well. You say, Pastor, well, I don't have fire over my head. I didn't hear a noise. That's how God did it that day. There's nowhere here where we have what we call a prescriptive statement. This is what we call a descriptive. There, there are two kinds of, dis- of events in the Bible. There are, there are descriptive events and prescriptive events. And so prescriptive are like the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. He's telling you directly. And many of the statements in the Bible and throughout the New Testament are telling us what we are are to do, what we should do, what we must do. Those are prescriptive. But there are events in the Bible that are descriptive. You know, the old saying, Judas went out and hanged himself. That's not prescriptive. That's descriptive of what happened. And uh, when Moses parted the Red Sea or God parted the Red Sea through Moses, that's descriptive of the miracle that happened then. But if you go out on Eagle Mountain Lake and you walk out into the lake thinking it's going to part for you because it did for Moses, you're probably going to drown. Because that's not prescriptive. Now, God may prescribe miracles in your life, but it probably won't happen on Eagle, Eagle Mountain Lake that I know of. Okay? So... That's descriptive, but it does not mean the Holy Spirit is not upon you and upon you in power. It simply says that the, or implies or suggests, or we see in the Bible that the Holy Spirit simply manifests itself in a particular way in our life. Powerfully, just as powerful, but different. See, these people had never had any experience with the Holy Spirit. Many of them didn't even know what that was. Certainly the God-fearers had never heard of that term at all. And so there was a need for something that they could hear and that they could see and that they could experience. And so that's what he did. Are you a believer? Then the Spirit of God lives in you. Number number two, we see not only indwelling faith, but also a saving faith. A saving faith. 
Further down in the same passage, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you know that first famous first sermon of Peter. And it was a, do a doozy. It was a dandy sermon. It was bold and in your face and, and, and um, uh, unapologetic. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says this. It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first thing he tells them to do, in fact, the very first word in this call, this prescriptive statement, is what? Repent. Whatever happens that brings about salvation, repentance, is really important because he began the whole thing with that, that very word, repent. Now, to repent means you're going one way in your life, you need to turn around and go the other way. And in their life, these people have come from every corner of the world. I assure you, it was a lost, dark, pagan world, a place where there were no Christians because Christianity had not spread beyond Jerusalem yet. So I, we already know their world was a dark world. These people, all of them, probably worshipped gods or had at one time in their life worshipped all kinds of Greek gods or Roman gods or North African gods or whatever gods there were in their country. It was a dark place. Remember, when the Apostle Paul went through, one of the, uh, through Rome, there was a major uh, thoroughfare, I think it was in Rome, where there were altars on each side of the road and for God after God after God or deity after deity after deity, all false gods. To Roman gods, to, to um, uh, Greek gods and to every god they could think of is what they did. They just wanted to do a kind of a theological road where they covered every base. But just in case there was a God that they didn't know about or hadn't heard of, they had one altar and Paul capitalizes on that particular altar. It's an empty altar, no statue, and it simply says to what? To an unknown God. So the Romans decided, well, if we miss one, you know, it's like the tomb of the unknown soldier. In case we miss one, if we don't know where they were or who they were, we, don't, we want to have a place even for them to honor them. So they wanted to do the same thing for a God that they might not have ever heard of. And so they put to an unknown God. Now, they, the ultimate irony in that is, as Paul explained, is that's the only altar that made any difference at all because all of those other gods were false gods. And he says, you know this altar that you made to an unknown God? Let me tell you about that God. And this is the culture in which these people have come from. And so we see, first of all, he says, you've been living a life that's contrary to what God wants for you. You need to repent. For you and I, it is impossible for us to come to salvation in Jesus Christ apart from repentance. You can't just slip into the kingdom of God casually, ever. It doesn't work that way. You have to repent. Number two, he says, be baptized. Now, what does that mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that baptism saves you. In fact, if you look back up in the passage, it says... It says, uh, it, it, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The forgiveness of your sins comes from Jesus Christ. Having said that, baptism is extremely important. Now, I know it doesn't save you because of other passages like Romans 10, 9, for example. 
That passage I often quote to you that tells you if you do this and you do this, you'll be saved. He gives two requirements for salvation. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is what requires repentance. You stop submitting to the Lordship of your ego or your anger or your greed or your lust or your neighbor or your friends or your culture or whatever you follow as a God, false deities, he says, instead of following that, you have to stop doing that and start following God. That's repentance. So <clears throat> you have to do that. And he says, you have to then confess Christ as your Lord. He says, if you remember, he says, uh, 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 Romans, oh, I was in Romans 10, 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Lordship of Christ. And number two, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the second step. You have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But I believe in faith that the Bible is true. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have to believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. Now notice it doesn't mention baptism as one of the two steps. However, baptism was important to Christ. It was a step of obedience once we surrendered our life to Christ. And this is what Peter is telling them to do. You're not the same person you used to be. Your old life is gone. It's dead. You've been buried with Christ and resurrected through him. And so he wanted them to be baptized because that's what baptism symbolizes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our death, burial to the old life and rebirth into a new life. And then we see third that you will receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, he immediately says, now, how long had Peter had the Holy Spirit in his life? Like 10 minutes. I mean, it's not like this is 30 years later and he, he has a lot of experience with the Holy Spirit, but he now has the Holy Spirit. And he says, not only did this happen to us, but it will happen to you when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Max Licato in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, tells the story of a missionary in Brazil who discovered a tribe of Indians in a remote part of the jungle. They lived near a large river, but the tribe was in need of medical attention, immediate medical attention. A contagious disease was ravaging their population. People were dying daily. The odd thing was a hospital was not very far away where they could receive treatment and not have to die, but the hospital was on the other side of the river. Now, the natives of this tribe believed that there were evil spirits in the river, so they didn't cross the river ever. Generation after generation lived near the river or by the river, but they never, ever crossed the river because they believed it was controlled by evil spirits and they would be killed if they went across. The missionary explained to them that he crossed the river and he was doing fine and they were not impressed. So he went down to the river, brought them down to the river bank, and he splashed his hand in the water, and they were not impressed. The story goes, he got into the river, waist deep, and began splashing around and said, look, it's perfectly safe. You don't see any evil spirits, do you? And they were not impressed. Finally, he turned around, dove into the water head first, and underwater, he swam the entire width of the river, popped up on the other side, onto the banks and defiantly held his fists in the air and said, I'm perfectly safe. Nothing could harm me. And only then did they believe that the evil spirits 
didn't exist or would not harm them. They began to cross the river and were able to go to the hospital to be saved. Is that not what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross? He entered the river of death and came out on the other side victorious that we may no longer fear death but find eternal life in him. My daughter is now 22 years old, hard to imagine. It seems like only yesterday I would take her to Six Flags as a little child and with our three children. And uh, those of you who have small children, this part of your life, uh, it seems like it's going to go on forever. It will be over just like that because it seems like yesterday. And when we went to Six Flags, it was a long and gruesome day because even though I like riding rides, that's the grown-up rides, and I didn't get to go to the grown-up rides. We spent our time the whole day in Looney Tunes land <laughs> riding those little bitty kitty rides, which, by the way, aren't built for people six foot two, and they're all this hard plastic because they go so slow they don't need to pad them. And it's extremely uncomfortable. And, and, you know, six hours or eight hours of that, and you're, you're longing for the day when your children will get older, older and they can ride the, the rides that you think are fun. So finally, I thought the day arrived one summer that Gabrielle, she's the oldest of my three, was old enough to ride a big ride with daddy. Now keep in mind, I do have a grown wife, but she, while she will ride the Looney Tune rides, that's it for her too. She's not getting on any roller coaster or any, riding any scary rides. And so finally, I've got Gabrielle uh, and I try to coax her on the ride and she's scared to death. She's afraid. She's never ridden one of those big rides and one of those fast roller coasters. And like a daddy, what daddies do, is that not what we do dads? We try to prepare them for adulthood, mostly for my sake because I wanted a riding partner. But uh, I did convince her. I said, I will be there. I will protect you. Everything will be fine. You'll be perfectly safe. And so she trusted me. And I told her, trust me. And finally she said, okay. She got on the ride. My daughter's always been pretty fearless, which is a challenge now because she drives just like her daddy. <laughs> but she got on that ride and uh, there was screaming. There was squeamishness before it took off. And, uh, and screaming on the way. But let me tell you, when that ride was over, she was thrilled, she was happy, and you couldn't get her back in Looney Tunes land anymore because she'd found good rides to ride with daddy. You know, that's what God does. He removes the fear from our life. You don't have to be afraid about what is happening in Washington because you have a crucified, risen Savior. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a home that is in glory land that outshines the sun. You don't have to worry about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine because God has saved you, redeemed you, and set you on a path to heaven. In fact, the Christians in Ukraine don't have to worry because they have the same path no matter what Putin decides to do. As a believer in Christ, I want to assure you of the indwelling faith, the saving faith of Jesus Christ, but also this morning, the multiplying faith of Jesus Christ. Look with me back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts 2, 42 says this, they, the church, in fact, God added 3,000 to their number that day. I don't know how they got through people walking down the aisle 
and introducing everybody, 3,000 people, my goodness, says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. They weren't bored. They weren't uh, disinterested. They weren't on the fence anymore. It was not something that was casual. They were thrilled and excited to be there and to be a part of God's kingdom. They were filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers, not some or most, all of the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. That stuff didn't matter anymore. They had a savior. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Listen to this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want you to know I'm so thankful that you're here. And if you have joined recently or in recent years and you're from another church home and you have moved into the area and you have transferred your membership here, I want to say thank you for coming to First Baptist Church. You are welcome here. But my desire and my belief as God grows his kingdom in, in Azle, Texas, and in this church is that we will have people saved over and over and over and over again. It's not just transfer growth. We need evangelistic growth. We need people getting saved every week. If we're doing what God called us to do, and if we're filled with awe as they were, and we're united, I believe that God will bless us and continue to bless us as he blessed them. The future of our church will only come through bringing people to Christ. As I said earlier, all of you have a testimony if you're believers. I came across a beautiful video recently about a fellow pastor here in the Metroplex, actually, who is Iranian, a Baptist pastor who's Iranian and grew up as a faithful Muslim. He came to faith in Christ and eventually became a pastor. And I want you to see a little part of his testimony. Watch this. Hi, my name is Afshin Ziafat. I'm the pastor of Providence Church in Frisco, Texas. And I would love to share with you how I came to know the call of Jesus Christ to follow him. Uh, in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And right there you see the call of Christ isn't just believe the right things about me, but to follow me. And to follow him entails a cost. He says you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. A lot of people don't want to talk about that part. They want to talk about the life part, the, 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 the uh, blessing part, but they don't want to talk about that the call first is to take up your cross, to lay your life down. Now don't misunderstand me. The gift of salvation that Christ offers is a free gift, not to be earned. But it's not just easy believism in a, in a person named Jesus and what he's done, but it's a commitment of your life to count the cost and to follow him. So I was born in Houston. When I was two years old, my family moved to Iran, where my parents are from. When I was six years old, the Islamic Revolution of the late 70s hit that country. We moved back to Houston. Uh, I didn't speak English. I spoke Farsi. And so an English tutor that was teaching me the English language every day by reading me books gave me a small New Testament in the second grade. I read that New Testament 10 years later, and that's how I came to faith in Christ. 
Because of my newfound faith in Christ, I decided to hide my faith from my family. I made my commitment to Christ public at, a, at an evangelistic crusade. And, and at driving home from this event is when it hit me. What am I going to tell my father? What am I going to tell my family? You see, my father had always been the most important person in my life, the guy I've always looked up to. And so I'm ashamed to tell you this, but I decide to hide my faith from him. I, I would sneak out to go to church. I would intercept mail from the church I was attending. I'd hide my Bible. Well, finally, one day, my dad found out. He'd seen my Bible. He'd seen other evidences in my life. And he sits me down. And he said, son, what's going on? I said, dad, what do you mean? He said, there's something different about you. And I said, well, dad, I'm a Christian. And he said, excuse me? I said, I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not, young man. You're a Muslim, and you'll always be a Muslim. I said, Dad, the Bible says if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then I'm a Christian, and I do. My dad said, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. And that's when it first nailed me. Everything in me wanted to say, forget it, I'll be a Muslim. Because I didn't want to lose my dad. And I share that so you know I'm not boasting today. Because uh, even I was surprised when I opened my mouth and I said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. And if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. So my father disowned me on the spot. I went upstairs to my room, and this is the defining moment of my life. I said, God, how could you do this to me? I said, Jesus, if you're real, how could you take my dad away from me? And the Lord led me to a passage of scripture in Matthew 10, where Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him. Jesus goes on to say, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father. And I'm reading this right after my dad disowned me. And I'm reading this going, whoa, this just happened for me. And it goes on and says, I've come to turn a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies with the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then again, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's when I first understood what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I'm passionate for people to know, look, there's a cost to following Jesus. What is it costing you to follow him? And it might be that the thing they're holding on to is the thing that's keeping them from a life lived for his glory. For me, it was my dad. For, for, for you, for others, it may be something else. I think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus lists off some commands. We're very good many times in a Christian culture at just kind of keeping the commands on the outside. This guy goes, oh, I've kept the commands. And Jesus says, all right, then go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you follow me. You see, Jesus knew who this man's God really was. And so the Bible says that this man walked away from Jesus sorrowful for he had great possessions. What a shame. He possessed great things he wasn't willing to lose and he missed out possessing the greatest thing in life. And so, what is the thing that we are holding on to? And our people have to learn. When you lose your life, you find it. Well, for me, I had to lose my family to follow Christ. But God gave me a roommate in college that was also a former Muslim who also was disowned by his father. God, from college, took me to seminary, gave me a, a man who paid for my entire seminary degree, a businessman in Dallas, gave me a position at a church to be an intern and then to be a college pastor and then gave me a 15-year speaking ministry where I've traveled all over the country 
preach the gospel, see Muslims come to faith in Christ. Uh, my story's been put in magazines that have gone all over the world. Now, why? Because I'm an amazing uh, minister, speaker, pastor, because I have a great resume? No, because God had a plan for my life. And I, and I believe when we lose our life is when we find the life that God wants us to have. One final thing, what's so amazing is that today, my relationship with my dad is restored. He's not a Christian. We're still praying for that. But on top of that, a ministry called Elam, which is in England, and this ministry reaches into Iran with the gospel. They found out about me. They've come and partnered with me, and now I go to the Middle East. I can't get into Iran, but I go to a neighboring country where men and women who've come to faith in Christ are coming there to be trained, and I get to train them and they go back into Iran. I'm not the only one. There's several of us that train them. But they go back to Iran and plant underground churches today. What's amazing is this. That today I could be a doctor and have my dad proud of me if I held on to my life. But by the grace of God, I was able to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. To lay my life down. And now today, I get to be part of a ministry impacting the nation that my family came out of. And so... When we lose our life, I believe our life will be leveraged and used for the glory of God and for others to know Jesus. And so that's why for us to be on mission, to be doing evangelism, we must first count the cost and follow Christ. Amen. Yeah. Now here's what I want you to know from that. God had a plan for his life or has a plan for his life and that same God has a plan for your life just as amazing, just as powerful, if you'll trust him. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today and we recognize that we have to do exactly what Peter told us to do. We have to repent. We have to leave the old life behind, just like this pastor did. We have to be willing to forsake all other things and all others. And Christ become our Lord. We have to confess him and confess him publicly. Your word says, as that pastor reminded us, Jesus said, if you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. So Father, we ask and pray that this would be the hour of salvation for someone here. That they would confess today. I want them to know that they are loved by you, that you care for them, you created them, your son died for them, and you have a plan for them in their life. It's an eternal plan. It's a fulfilling plan. It is an indwelling plan. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ? I want you to know he loves you and he has a purpose for your life. But you have to take that step. He's not going to force you. You have to take that step. Come down and say, Pastor, I surrender myself to Christ. Would you be willing to do that in faith? He'll change your life. He'll put you on the right path. This world has nothing for you. Listen to me, this world has nothing for you. They wrap it up in a pretty bow. They made it look so exciting. 
all of that stuff out there, all of that temptation, but in the end, it's poison. It'll take your life. It'll waste your life until you die. It will distract you from your purpose in life. Will you give it up right now and surrender yourself to Jesus Christ? I'm going to challenge you here in just a moment. We're going to stand, and as we pray, I want to challenge you to come down. If you've not done that, come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus right now. Would you be willing to do that? That's all you have to do. Again, there are no secret Christians in the first century or the 21st century. That's why you need to come down publicly. But if you would be willing to do that, Pastor, I surrender my life to Jesus. God will save you. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. And God will give you victory in this life and eternity in heaven. No one's looking around as you pray. Would you stand? Everyone stand. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed right now. Here's your opportunity. God is calling you right now as we pray. You come.